Broadcasting live from the North Fulton Business Radio X studio, it's time for To Your Health with Dr. Jim Morrow. To Your Health is brought to you by Morrow Family Medicine, an award-winning primary care practice, which brings the care back to health care. Good afternoon. This is To Your Health with Dr. Jim Morrow, and that's me. I'm Jim Morrow. I'm with Morrow Family Medicine. We have an office in Milton, Georgia, and in Cumming, Georgia, where we like to say we are bringing care back to health care. And we are here every second and fourth Wednesday on North Business, North Fulton Business Radio. We're very excited to be here today. We're doing something new and different for our show today. Today, for the first time, I have a guest with me who I'm going to be talking with about colon cancer and colon cancer screening. So I'd like you to welcome Dr. Simon Cofrancesco from GI North in Cumming, Georgia. Hey, Simon. Thanks, Jim. Good to have you. Thank you very much. Glad so, to be here. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about your practice and you before we get started, if you would. Uh, GI North started in 2011 when I got to town, and we've steadily grown since then. We uh, started out with just myself, uh, and then we've added three additional providers, two gastroenterologists, and uh, one nurse practitioner. And uh, we've opened up uh, an endoscopy center that's just starting to get going. In addition to our clinic, it's actually just across the hallway in the uh, a building, probably a half a mile from where you are. Well, that's wonderful. Yeah. I know you're glad to have that up and running. Absolutely. That's got to be a good thing. So I wanted to talk to you about colon cancer screening and colon cancer itself a little bit. And I know the, the whole thing of colon cancer screening has changed so much since you and I were in training. We went from what looked like this stand, this microphone is on, <laughs> to what's thankfully a lot more flexible now. Um, but if you would, give us an, uh, an overview of what a colonoscopy is all about. Uh, you know, most people today, especially around here, know know about it. It's unusual, like you said, 20 or 30 years ago to run into somebody who's not familiar with what it is, but it is just a long, flexible tube, very small, about about like a finger in diameter, and it has a light on the end. And we just look carefully in the colon uh, for little growths called polyps and remove those because that's how uh, you develop colon cancer, a slow process of a little growth called a polyp that over years gets bigger and eventually turns into cancer. Okay. Now, speaking of colon cancer, can you talk a little bit about how many people get colon cancer and how common it is? Is it something everybody needs to be worried about and so forth? Well, you know, it really is either the second or third most common cancer in this country. And um, I think the number has hovered around 5%. That's a big number. 5% of people in this country are going to get colon cancer. Um, but the good news is, is that you can prevent that, not catch it early, but prevent that by getting a colonoscopy and removing polyps to prevent cancer. So it's really a very different concept than most other cancers. It's not like a mammogram where you you detect breast cancer early, we we prevent it. And the numbers are showing that. So the newest numbers out show that colon cancer in people older than 50 is going down in this country over decades because people are getting screened for it. Unfortunately, the other new news is people under 50, it's going up. Um, so uh, the good news is, though, is you can prevent it. And they're starting to change some of the age ranges. And um, it's very prevalent, and um, 
It's the number two cancer killer in this country. Wow. Well, that's wonderful. I know I preach to people about going to get colonoscopies to the point sometimes of berating them, I suppose you could say, but I certainly browbeat them, if nothing else, if they're 56 or 58 and they haven't been. If they're, see, I had one the other day, 63 years old, never been for a colonoscopy, and I broke them, the bad news to them. I said, you need two colonoscopies. You need one for when you were 50 and one for when you were 60. <laughs> Lucky for you, you can make that all up in one. You don't have to worry about it. Now, people worry about colon cancer, but what are the signs and symptoms of colon cancer? You know, the bad news is is that um, we go based on age because symptoms are not a reliable way to detect it. So everybody thinks they're in touch with their body, and they I constantly hear, which I'm sure you hear too, um, you know, I know my body, I feel fine, there's nothing wrong. And, and it's hard to explain to people when you do find cancer, and it's really a surprise, that it's probably been there for five, it's been cooking or evolving for five to 10 years. So the, probably one of the most common symptoms of colon cancer is that there isn't any symptoms. Um, And that's the scary part. But when people do get more advanced disease, some things that do um, show up to the patient are pain or change in bowels or um, blood in the stool. Um, if they're lucky enough to have those symptoms because of where the cancer is, uh, then they may get detected at a time where they can be treated successfully. But again, probably the cancers that we're seeing more and more lately start in the beginning of the colon. And so those symptoms I just mentioned are not usually as prevalent or common. Okay, good. Now, I know the thing that patients talk about the most about a colonoscopy, at least to me, is the prep. You know, they dread the prep because they know that they've got to drink or they think they've got to drink this gallon of salt water, and it's horrible. Last time I had one, I think you told me to put (laughs) a packet of Crystal Light in my gallon of Go Lightly, and now I can't drink Crystal Light because I can't get that taste out of my mouth from the Go Lightly. But talk about the options for a prep for a colonoscopy. Well, there's been some improvement. Um, uh, you know, we have smaller preps now that are about half of a soda, six ounces or so. So it's improved. Um, it's not a major improvement, but it's an improvement, and it does uh, make it a little easier on patients, to be honest with you, because more people can tolerate low volumes, even though the taste isn't that good. Mm -hmm. So it's a lot easier um, as far as the prep goes. It's still, it's still the part that people don't like. Well, if it's only a few ounces, it must be liquid dynamite. Is that what they call it? Well, it works. It works for 99% of people. I bet, I bet (laughs) it does. I can just imagine. So if we're, if we're going through the colon and we're looking for things and we find a polyp. What do you do at that point? Uh, you know, the majority of the time we just take it out. It's usually not big and we have devices that can remove them. Um, uh, people don't feel anything. The risk of injury to the colon is very, very small. Especially today we use devices where we don't have to use any electricity and that really has almost completely removed significant risks from performing a colonoscopy. Um, But it's just a small bump. Now, there are times where it's big, unexpectedly, and we can't safely remove it endoscopically. And sometimes people do have to have surgery, but that's a real vast minority of people. 
And am I right in remembering that if you do that, you'll put a tattoo on the inside of the colon? Very correct. That is correct. If there's something that we have to monitor closely or we have to alert the surgeons to, then we do put a tattoo on that. That's correct. That's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. So you mentioned a potential problem, and the other thing people talk about is they'll, I'll say, well, you need a colonoscopy, and I'll hear, well, I, I don't want a colonoscopy because I knew somebody that had a colonoscopy, and they had a perforation. Right. And usually at that point I'll say, well, how'd you get to the office? And they'll say, well, what do you mean I drove? And I'll say, you, you, you drove an automobile? Have you not known anyone that got killed in a car wreck? Oh, my God, and, and, and you drove here? So talk about the numbers for perforations. Well, you know, they're changing uh, and they should be changing because as I mentioned in the last five to 10 years, we're using devices that make it almost impossible to perforate somebody. Now, if something's big and we have to use what's called electrocautery or electricity, that does increase the risk, but it's still somewhere in the range of one in 2000. And, and you know, I, I like your approach with the automobile. Um, what I tell people, though, is the other side of the coin is, is that there's a rare risk of perforation. But what is your risk of colon cancer? And it's going to be at least 5%. So 1 in 2,000 versus at least 5%. Which one's less risky? I'll have to get the calculator app on my phone open to answer that, but I'll do that later, I promise. So you're going through the colon and you're looking at polyps and you pull them out and you take them off and do a polypectomy. You send them to the lab. Talk. This is a little bit more detailed than some people will want, but I think we've got a, a fairly intellectual listening audience, so I want to give them some details about that. Can you talk a little bit about the types of polyps they might find? You know, probably the easiest thing for me to say is, and this is a big point of confusion, is that there's two types of polyps. Not really, but I'm going to simplify it. So there's the kind of polyp that you have to remove because it has potential in time to turn into cancer. And then there's some small percentage of polyps that don't have any potential to turn into cancer. And um, we see those in certain locations of the colon. So I first divided into that kind of um, approach. Um, then you get into a lot more detail that's probably, as you've mentioned, a little bit above, you know, the, the routine dialogue you'll have with a patient. But there is two kinds of polyps, and there's some that we can simply ignore because uh, we they'll never be a problem. So I know until recently it was fairly clean cut, very simple. If you had a hyperplastic polyp that doesn't turn to cancer, you can repeat the test in five years. If you had an adenoma, the type that can turn to cancer, you can repeat it in one to three years, depending on size. But you told me not long ago that that's changed. So what should people expect in that now? Yeah, the most common thing is, is that if people are going to have polyps or there's a family history of polyps or cancer, they should get a colonoscopy roughly every three to five years. It's usually five years, but depending on what we find, it can vary a little bit. In people who are average risk, where they don't have polyps and or nobody in their family has polyps or cancer, they can go 10 years. That shows you how slow a process colon cancer is. If we check someone today who's average risk, it would, generally speaking, take 10 years 
for them to start to develop colon cancer. So it's such a slow process, but it's usually that five or 10 years. And then we, we do kind of bring it down under certain circumstances. There's variables that we look at um, that can make us do it more frequently. The size of the polyp, how we have to remove the polyp, the specific pathology of the polyp, the number of polyps, how well they were cleaned out, a variety of different things. And the low-volume prep, as they usually call it, does a good enough job so you don't have to go back because you didn't get cleaned out well in most cases? Yeah, the preps work, but not all the time. And, and, and that's true. Unfortunately, we disappoint about one out of ten people. They have to come back because the standard prep, for whatever reason, didn't work. Studies show that. We, you know, I see that in my experience. So there are a small group of people that will do what they're supposed to, and it doesn't matter whether it's a large volume prep, Jim, or a, the new smaller ones. The, the change we have in the preps today are split dose. Mm-hmm. And nobody likes this, but it is. it does allow us to get a better examination where you take half of the prep the day before, like usual, and the other half three hours before your colonoscopy. And what that does is, is it keeps the colon clean on that beginning part of the colon where the bacteria start to repopulate very quickly from drinking the prep the day before. So we don't see as well when they do it all in one day versus splitting it up. So that's a quality measure that us GI doctors are supposed to be doing to get a, a more thorough examination. Super. And if they do, you mentioned a family history. If they do have a family history, what age do you recommend they start at? A family history is either at 40 years of age, from 50 to 40, or if the person in the family, like a 45-year-old comes in and I find a polyp on them, it would be 10 years younger than that, whichever's the youngest. Okay. So I'm, I'm seeing polyps now in people in their 30s and 40s. Their children have to get checked 10 years before they were diagnosed with a polyp. So we're starting to reach downwards with colonoscopy. Well, as I tell patients, too, I think very few people ever died and went to the pearly gates and said to St. Peter, you know, I wish I hadn't had so many colonoscopies. (laughs) But I can promise you that the opposite had been said to St. Peter. Yeah. So occasionally patients will tell me that it was very uncomfortable when they had their colonoscopy or they were unable to finish the colonoscopy because of what's called a tortuous colon, a twisted sort of colon, curvy colon. Uh, Can you tell me a little bit about what you do in that situation and what all that means? Well, you know, first off is that if you have an experienced gastroenterologist, you know, the chances of not completing a colonoscopy should be literally one, two, or three percent. I mean, it should be exceptional. Good. So first of all, that's not really something that's very common, but on occasion it can happen. And then if that does by chance happen, the, the testing you would have to do as an alternative would be probably some form of an x-ray or some of those tests that, you know, people who don't want to have colonoscopy get like uh, hemocult testing, which is testing for microscopic blood in the stool, or there's that relatively new DNA test, Cologuard. Um, those aren't perfect ways. Those have limitations, but um, those are some of the things that you can do. It should be exceptional that a colonoscopy cannot be completed, just so you know. So you mentioned Cologuard, and I was going to get to that because I get asked that daily, it seems like. Uh, what do you tell patients about why the colonoscopy is the preferred test to Cologuard? Um, Cologuard has a lot of limitations. Um, 
it's not meant to pick up polyps, first of all. Um, it picks up cancer. So you're already moving away from something that can prevent cancer and you're moving into something that diagnoses cancer. Big difference there, right? Mm -hmm. Number one. Um, number two, uh, Although the studies say that it's supposed to be accurate or specific 85% of the time, uh, I think not just myself, but everybody I've spoken to will say that it's not the case. Probably the last 20 people I've scoped with a positive cologuard have not had colon cancer. So it's been wrong. And then finally, the biggest uh, thing about cologuard is, is that Patients and doctors don't know what it's indicated for. It's very narrow indication. It's not for everybody. It's for average risk individuals. So if they have had polyps or cancer and if, so, and or if somebody else in their family has had polyps or cancer, in other words, a high risk individual, it's not intended for them because those people have a high rate of polyps and the Cologuard test will not tell you if they have polyps. So it's very narrow, but in reality, I know that people get it and I don't blame you for what you do or anybody else is that they're just not going to have a colonoscopy and this is probably the best you can do. So that's real world, you know. People ask me who's the Cologuard for, I tell them it's for chickens because <laughs> it's just for people who don't want to have the best test because they're scared or frightened or things like that. They've been reading on the internet about colonoscopies. Yeah, and like you say, it's very anecdotal. They'll hear about, you know, you do hear about that one person who had a tragic, uh, you know, complication. Right. But they don't hear about the thousands of people that, you know, they don't mention it because it was no big deal. Yeah. And after a colonoscopy, what should patients expect post-op, if you will? I know it's not an operation, but after the colonoscopy, what's the rest of their day likely to be like? Um, you know... I have to say it should be normal. I mean, the biggest thing when they wake up is going to be just the sedation wearing off and what they've just been through the day before by not eating and maybe some electrolyte disturbances. They may feel tired a little, you know, they've been getting up very early to finish the second half of their prep. Mm -hmm. So the, the biggest thing is, is people are going to probably be a little bit fatigued or tired after sedation and not eating regularly and maybe some mild electrolyte abnormalities. But you know, the, here's a nice thing. I'll, uh, I'll put a little plug in for our practice. We have scopes now where we are that we don't use air to in, put into the colon. We use CO2. So that bloating and distension and air feeling that some people got or cramping, they won't have that at our place because we have CO2, for instance, which was probably the most common complaint, feeling bloated or right. distended or cramping. So barring a, a rare complication, um, it's most people just pretty normal after the procedure. They can eat normal. They can't drive, but everything else is pretty much the same. And they can't drive because they've been sedated. And right. these days you're using propofol, is that right? Which is ultra quick and it wears off quick. And people feel great. They really feel like they can drive, but they're still, their motor skills probably aren't up to snuff. So and that's even though they feel like they are. Right. And if anybody doesn't know, propofol is what Michael Jackson used to go to sleep at night for years and years and years, which is a little bit of a problem, which is why his doctor's in jail right now. Yeah. And, you know, that came up a lot when that first happened with Michael Jackson. A lot of patients were very scared. And, and all I can convince people and tell people about is I've been using propofol for my patients for 
probably 20 to 25 years, right before we were using uh, Versed and so forth. And um, it's a it's a perfect drug for endoscopy. In fact, when I have my colonoscopy, that's what I have, propofol. Well, it's incredibly safe, and people just don't realize that the one-off that they're doing is nothing compared to anything else. So I think it's a great choice. I'm glad they're using it now. I know yeah. when, I, when I had mine done, uh, it was a, a nothing event, pretty exactly. much. Exactly. Exactly that, just a nothing event. So uh, with, with the colonoscopy, you know, you're going through there, you're looking for polyps, but I know there are other things that you might find, and it doesn't relate directly to colon, directly to colon cancer screening, but uh, talk about some of the other things you might find, inflammation and bleeding and so forth and so on. Yeah, the most common thing we see is polyps. Um, I actually, second most common thing, because everybody's got diverticulosis. I'll mention that it's very unusual in this country that I do a colonoscopy on someone 50 or older and don't see diverticulosis. So uh, fortunately, though, most people won't be bothered by that. Only a small percentage will get an infection called diverticulitis. Um, so that is the most common abnormal finding. And we don't really do anything about it except, except excuse me, um, encourage people to eat more fiber. Right. And to take a fiber supplement every day. Actually, I, I encourage everybody to take a, a fiber supplement every day. It's, it's an important part of our diet that we are missing in this country. We just don't get enough fiber. So, um, with or without diverticulosis, I think it's a good idea, but especially with diverticulosis. Um, then, you know, probably the next most common thing that we see is inflammatory conditions, which you've already kind of alluded to. And uh, they can be infections um, or very commonly it can be autoimmune conditions like Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis. We see a lot of autoimmune conditions. It's very common. It's not diminishing. In fact, I think it's probably becoming more common in my practice, to see somebody with Crohn's or ulcerative colitis. And then there's a smattering of less common diseases uh, that cause inflammation. And with insurance coverage today, most insurance companies that I know of these days cover a screening colonoscopy. Is that right? Yeah, they do. And, and, and the problem the problem is it's very complicated. Um, but you're correct. If someone has a history, no history, of colon cancer, colon polyps, they get screening. But it's funny how the insurance companies play games and, and you know, if your family history was positive or um, you have irritable bowel syndrome or symptoms or um, you've had a polyp in the past, they try to change things. Or if I remove something during a screening colonoscopy, it changes. So it's, um, you know, my perspective on that is it's a, it's become a very tricky thing. It's become a game. And you know how insurance companies do that. Sure. And we were constantly uh, struggling to, to, you know, uh, placate the insurance companies on this and help our patients. It's kind of a little conflictual. Okay. Yeah. So while you've got patients there, a lot of times I know patients will come to me and they'll be taking Prilosec or the generic version and take it every single night. If they don't take it for two days, they have horrible heartburn. So getting while we're staying in the endoscopy suite, sort of, uh, you can look for ulcers by doing an upper endoscopy, not just a colonoscopy. So how's that procedure done? Uh, upper endoscopy is a much quicker test. You don't have to prepare for it. It takes about 10 minutes. All you do is skip your breakfast, put in an IV, and then um, people will take a nap for five or 10 minutes. They won't know anything was done. Just like a colonoscopy, they'll wake up speaking to the nurse like, when are they going to start? So like you said about your experience, there is no experience 
Um, and, you know, we look carefully at the esophagus, stomach, and duodenum, which is basically the upper GI tract. Commonly, we see diseases of the esophagus, very common, um, probably more so now than stomach disorders, believe it or not. Um, ulcer disease was the king when I was starting out in the uh, early 90s. Um, and it's funny how it's shifted. Esophageal diseases have become much more common. Uh, maybe it's because of the medications we have over the counter. Maybe it's because of H. pylori being treated so much. But um, esophageal diseases make up a big part of uh, what gastroenterologists take care of uh, in the uh, upper part. I think every time I mention to a patient that they can do the two tests at the same time, their biggest question is, will they use a different scope? And I assure them that they will. And if they don't, ask them to do the upper first. That way, it doesn't really matter. Yeah. Um, I, I joke around and I tell them it depends on their insurance. <laughs> I'll have to remember that. I love that. So John's over here acting like he has some questions for us. We're here in the studio at Renaissance Bank on Windward Parkway, and we've got John Ray here at, business, at North Fulton Business Radio. John's got some questions from listeners. That's that right. Been sent in. What you got, John? How you doing? I'm good. How are you? Good. This is my first guest. I know it. You did a great job. I'm nervous as a cat. Why? I don't know. <laughs> but I am. Well, he, he's the one that had, had to have all the answers today. Usually well, it's you. So I, I count on him to have this, too. <laughs> okay. Well, here's, here's a couple of questions that uh, we've got that have come in. So um, uh, this question is about blood in the stool. Does that automatically mean I have colorectal cancer? Absolutely not. Uh, you know, if I looked at all comers with that problem, Fortunately, it's a minority, but it, it does, it's important for us to make sure that it isn't colon cancer. But in many instances, it's something very insignificant or small that we can easily take care of hemorrhoids, et cetera. So, yeah. along those lines, let me jump in there, John. Sure. If someone comes to me, their family doctor, and says, I have, I have some blood in my stool, do I send them straight to you? Uh, you know, I, I guess if it's been a few years since they've had a colonoscopy and if they're, you know, not young, like 20 or 25, um, it, it does kind of get into that um, mode where um, there might be a concern about liability because today um, it's hard to ignore an adult who has blood in the stool who hasn't had a recent colonoscopy. I'd say it's almost a no-brainer, but there are some circumstances where you could probably just say, let's try to treat you for hemorrhoids first because you had a colonoscopy a year or two ago or something like that. Well, it's good to know I'm doing that right because I do know that one of the worst things I hear is when you hear about a patient 36 years old that actually died from colon cancer because it does happen. And you talked about that earlier. And if anybody gets anything from this, I hope they'll get that they need to go for colonoscopy. What else you got, John? So uh, I'd like to say something about that because yeah. I actually last year had a young man with no family history who came to me with what sounded like hemorrhoidal bleeding, and I wiped the sweat off my brow after I scoped him because he had colon cancer. So, you know, your, your experience with a 30-year-old, and I'll just tell you what, you got to pay attention, and I didn't mean to say you don't pay attention when they're younger because I've clearly had people... Fortunately, this young man survived and has done very well, but I see all age groups, and so it gets tricky, you know, but it's a no-brainer when they're mid-40s and 50s, and they have blood, and 
you, you just got to get checked. Right. Yeah. Right. So a lot, you're hitting something on that uh, this next question gets at uh, right now, which is you mentioned the earlier incidents of colorectal cancer. So is every 10 years enough? You know, it, I can just tell you about my experiences is that it works, it works well the vast majority of times. You know, the screening procedures are set up not to be perfect. They're not perfect. And, you know, I hate to have to explain common sense to people. We don't have perfect tests and we don't have unlimited resources. So they draw a line somewhere that gets almost everybody. But yeah, 10 years is a long time. And when that first was incorporated, a lot of us were very uncomfortable. You know, as it's panned out over the years, I don't see a lot of people getting burned, but it's not perfect. Some people will. Now, one other age-related question. This comes from a listener uh, talking about her mom. At what point does a patient's age make a colonoscopy more of a problem than it's worth? Good question. Yeah, that's an excellent question, and there's no simple answer to that. I go through that every day. Um, you know, everybody's very focused on the number. The first thing I'd say is the number starts a conversation. So to give you an example, I have an 85-year-old gentleman, and this is not an isolated situation. I have lots of people like this in their mid-80s, highly functioning they just finished mowing their lawn. They drove themselves in, and I diagnosed them with colon cancer six years ago, and they want their colonoscopy. So they're a high-risk individual, and they're highly functioning. That person has already broken the curve on the age thing. Right. So I do a colonoscopy, and I have lots of those people, and they do great. And then I have somebody who comes in who's 75 who's you know, not doing well. They're just not healthy. And, you know, they have a limited life expectancy, maybe three, four, or five more years left. They haven't had polyps or there's no high risk. That person clearly doesn't need a colonoscopy. The risk of the colonoscopy might be greater because their risk of cancer is low. So, I mean, age is to me something that you start a dialogue with and then you have to look at both sides. What's the risk for the patient? of the procedure and what are their risks possibly of having colon cancer. And then I get with the patient and then we come together on a decision because many times, sometimes I do a procedure because the patient wants me to because they're concerned because their dad had colon cancer and they don't want to get colon cancer. And that may, you know, make us favor doing a colonoscopy. So it's not an easy answer and it's a case by case basis. Peace of mind is an incredible commodity, and I tell people you should get all you can get. It's it's can be therapeutic for some people. Jim and I see people every day that suffer from anxiety. I mean, it's real, especially as people get older. Mm -hmm. They get more fragile, and you can give them peace of mind. And, you know, if you're smart and you've done this, you don't – we're not hurting older people, but there's definitely people that are older that safely can have colonoscopy. Great. That's it? That's it. That's it. Well, good. Well, this is Dr. Jim Morrow. And again, I want you to know that I'm with Mara Family Medicine. At Mara Family Medicine, we use technology and old-fashioned attitudes to do our very best to make you feel better every day. We're located in Milton and Cumming, Georgia. Our website for the show is toyourhealth.md. If you want to send us a question or a show topic you might want us to try, the email is Dr. Jim, that's drjim at toyourhealth.md, or you can tweet us at toyourhealthmd. 
And uh, Dr. Simon Francesco, if you would tell us a little bit about how patients can get in touch with you and come see you or one of your partners. Absolutely. Thanks, Jim. Um, GI North, um, and the phone number is 404-446-0600. They can also look at our website, ginorth.com. And I believe our uh, website is gi-north. Um, I'm blanking out right there. Help me out here. His marketing director is right behind him over here. She, unfortunately, my marketing director doesn't remember our website, so I apologize. We'll have it in the show notes. <laughs> this is great. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> well, I do appreciate everybody listening, and if you are enjoying the show and the podcast, wherever you're listening, hit the subscribe button so you can be sure and be notified when there's another episode. I really want to thank Dr. Simon Francesco for being my first guest on the show and for coming on with us. That's great. In two weeks, we're going to uh, have a, a very interesting show, a little bit different also. This is going to be an interview with Derek Bailey from The Right Move. They specialize in helping your seniors find uh, a good location and a good solution to whatever their residential situation might be. So we're going to talk with Derek in two weeks. And until then, that is to your health.